Welcome to the Round Rock Church of Christ Teaching Podcast. We're a faith community located in the central Austin area that gathers at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope this teaching blesses you as we become spirit-filled and spirit-led Jesus followers for those who do not have a home. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Zane, for that lovely introduction and for being with you. I was a, a child of the 80s. I grew up in the 80s. We all grew up in the 80s. And the 80s were great. The music was awesome. Music was awesome. But my favorite thing about growing up in the 80s were Churches of Christ celebrated Halloween. Actual Halloween. Not fall festivals. Actual Halloween. And in fact, we used to have haunted houses in our churches. In my church growing up in the Erie Church of Christ in Pennsylvania, during Halloween, we would have a haunted house in the, in the basement. Churches of Christ used to do this. And what was fascinating about that season was the adults in my youth group would go back, to, back and forth each year hosting it. And it got to be competitive. And so we had this escalating game of horror. And it got, I remember vividly when the, the teens lost, the adults had control of a haunted house that year. And I remember walking to the haunted house in the basement of the Erie Church of Christ. And there on a table in a, in a lace dress was the preacher's wife, Mary Ann, screaming because a large blade was swinging through her midsection. Um, and we were all like just absolutely horrified. This was, this was spiritual formation in the 1980s in the Churches of Christ. This is, this was, this is what we felt would be edifying for our, our youth. Now, we don't celebrate Halloween anymore in the Churches of Christ because in the 80s, what happened in the late 80s? The satanic panic broke out and everybody got really freaked about rock and roll music, Dungeons and Dragons and Halloween. And so we started shifting to the fall festivals. And so there's no more haunted houses in our in our churches. But looking at that, many, many Christians feel like, you know, we to surrender the haunted house to the secular world. That's unfair. Like, why do they get the haunted houses and we don't? And so there have been some churches that have given this peculiar Christian twist to the haunted house. They go by a variety of names, but the one down my street right now in Abilene, Texas, is called the Judgment House. Has anybody heard of this phenomenon? The Judgment. This is the Christian version of the haunted house. Now, if you've never been to a Judgment House, this is how it goes. First of all, you got to get a lot of teenagers on a bus and drive them to the building. Okay, they get off the bus and they go down into the very first room. And in that first room, there's loud rock and roll music playing, hopefully from the 80s. And you see all of these teenagers in a variety of levels of waywardness and sinful rebellion. They're, they're smoking uh, drugs, they're drinking alcohol, they're making out on the couch. And you just, you just look at this, this scene playing out evil, wicked teenagers. What's going to happen next? Well, your tour guide takes you to the next room. In the next room, there's like these flashing ambulance lights and broken glass all over the floor and the bodies of bloody teenagers laid out on a highway. All the kids that were partying have died in a car accident on the way home on Saturday night. What's going to happen next? We go to the next room and it's dark and there's a fire in the background and there's demons 
populating the room, and all of these wicked teenagers are being tortured in the bowels of hell, which has got to be a weird moment for a youth group to look across the room and go, hey, why is Bill dressed up like Beelzebub, you know? That'd be a, that was a, that's the Christian version of the haunted house, the judgment house. And we might look at the judgment houses that populate our country at this time of year with a degree of, you know, we, we, it's not a really good, lovely way to do it, like evangelism anymore. But as I reflect upon growing up in the churches of Christ, I kind of feel like we've had our own versions of judgment house theology where we're concerned about how our behavior impacts the, the emotions of God. Frankly, I kind of felt every Sunday morning when I went to church, that Sunday morning became like a judgment house. Because everything on a Sunday morning seemed fragile and precarious, like likely to trigger an angry outburst from God. And you say, well, why did you feel that way? Because every Sunday we would pray this prayer. May, may what we do here today, may our worship be what? Pleasing. Like we, we hoped that it would be pleasing. And everything felt very precarious. Like we were walking on eggshells if something happened that wouldn't be pleasing. And sometimes these were big things and sometimes these were little things. I remember one time a friend of mine was doing communion and he was young and hadn't done a lot. He got confused and he accidentally sent the juice around first. You ever been in a church where that got confused? The, the juice went around first. And all I felt, I looked at my friend, I go, we are going to hell. Like, this is not, this is not the proper and pleasing way to do communion. He got it, he got it backwards. And this ripple of anxiety goes out. Is this okay? Will, will, will he be upset with us? I remember once, um, one of our women went off, and I, and I think she went away for the summer and spent time with some Pentecostals, okay, and kind of came back a little enthusiastic about worship. And as we were singing, she started clapping. You ever have that happen? Some, somebody begin to clap. And, and again, you know, we were looking through Scripture going like, I don't, I don't see... A prohibition about clapping but it wasn't singing and it was kind of percussive and so we all got very anxious about the clapping and so I kid you not we sat her down and said listen we're not sure how the Lord feels about this and so since we're a little uncertain please stop just don't clap so we have our own versions of this, the anxieties about pleasing God, worries that God is satisfied with our behavior, feeling like he can, his emotions can turn from sunny to angry and stormy, just, just like that. 
And I have two concerns about this. One is just an evangelistic concern. If, if this is the way we present God to the culture, does this sound like good news to anybody? Does this sound like a, a really beautiful way to live? Please come to my church where we walk on eggshells and feel that everything is always at risk. Would anybody want to step into that anxiety? So I have an evangelistic concern about how we present the good news. If our emotional life with God is fraught with so much anxiety, but my second concern is more pastoral about your heart and mine. I'm concerned pastorally because I think this way of thinking about God, that God's emotions are fragile, God's emotions are changeable, God's emotions are volatile, God's emotions are, are predict unpredictable and unstable, creates what psychologists would call an anxious attachment. Psychologists describe children who have an anxious attachment rather than a secure attachment. A securely attached child is pretty confident on the warmth and the reliability of their parents' emotions, but anxiously attached children spend their lives constantly monitoring and managing with their behavior the emotions of an unpredictable parent. They have to constantly monitor and manage with their behavior the stormy and unpredictable emotions of a parent. And I think in many ways that, that what is what we have done amongst our people is we have formed a very anxiously attached church where we are constantly wondering if the juice goes around first, will he be upset? And if he is upset, how can we get that right again? Right? We, we worry about whether or not, if somebody claps, will, will he be upset? And what can we do to make sure that he isn't upset? So please stop. We spend our whole life trying to monitor the stormy, unpredictable feelings of a parent and think that somehow, through our behavior, that we can get things just right. And then maybe, if we can get to the end of this service, he will be happy with us. That is a very anxiously attached way of approaching our relationship with God. I was reflecting on this online about, for some reason, those messages of a, a volatile and unpredictable God, a father whose emotions could swing pretty unreliably. And for some reason, they didn't really penetrate into my life. <clears throat> that I was somehow buffered against some of the most toxic versions of those messages. And somebody reflecting upon that said, you know, I, I think it's probably because you had good, good parents. And I want to be clear, I, I don't think good parenting is a silver bullet. But I do think in my case, this was the truth, that somehow the messages I was getting in the pews about worrying about whether or not God was always pleased with me or not as a teenager, were filtered through the affections of my, of my parents. 
And I didn't feel like the affections of my parents was at risk. So I filtered those theological messages through an affectional bond that was communicated through my parents, mainly through my mother. Now, Paula Beck, who's still alive, had a very unique parenting style. Now, when I got too tall for her and my brother got too tall for mom, she hated looking up at us. It just drove her crazy to yell at us, looking up at us. So mom would grab us by the shirt and, and pull us down to eye level. And I spent most of my teenage years bent over like this, looking at mom, you know, constantly, come here, you know? And when mom would pull us down and look at us eye level, eye to eye, she would say crazy things to us. And this is the one I remember most. She'd pull us down to eye level and she'd say, you could kill somebody. This is, mom was extreme, okay? She, she you could, you could kill somebody and I would still love you. And you'd be like, mom, you're crazy. Try to run away from her. She'd be like, come here, listen to me, pull you back down. You could kill somebody and I would still love you. That's how Paula Beck raised me. And I take two things away from that. Number one, my mom sent me very mixed messages about homicide. <laughs> like I, I'm just, she wasn't back exactly clear on that particular point. Felt a little open-ended to me, you know? But I think really what she was trying to communicate was in her very extreme Paula Beck kind of way is like, this love isn't fragile. You would grab the craziest thing you could think of doing behaviorally. You could kill somebody. And I would still love you. And I think about that love from my mom. And it reminds me of Isaiah 49. In Isaiah 49, verse 4, the people of God, Zion, they cry out. They say this, the Lord has abandoned me, and the Lord has forgotten me. And they feel that these affections of God have, have been lost. He's, he's, he's angry now. He's upset with me. He's... he's Kick me out of the house. The Lord has abandoned me. And then God responds in what I think are some of the most tender and beautiful words of Scripture. God says this, Can a woman forget her nursing child or lack compassion for the child of her womb? Mothers, can I see your hands? Can you forget? Right? Can you forget? No. And then God goes even further. Look. Even if these forget. Because human mothers are still human. Even if these forget. Yet I will not forget you, for look, I have inscribed you 
on the palms of my hand. I love that image because God kind of reaches down in this statement and says, what is the fiercest, most loyal, and unconditional love that we know on earth? The mother's love for her child. And God says, let's begin there. Let's take the most ferocious love on the planet. And God says, mine's better. How fragile is that love? How vulnerable is that love? How fickle or unchanging is that love? Take the love of a mother and multiply it to borrow from Buzz Lightyear to infinity beyond. My love is better. That is good news for the anxiously attached. I thought about a mother's love last spring. I had a squirrel in my attic. You ever have a squirrel in your attic? It was springtime and we had, I called the pest control person over and we were trying to figure out how to catch this squirrel and, and we discovered where the squirrel was getting in and out. And so I said, well, I'm just gonna, you know, block that part of the house off. And then the pest control person said this, well, I wouldn't do that if I were you. I said, why? Well, here's the thing. Mama squirrels have their babies in the spring. And if you block that mama squirrel out and she has babies in your attic, that mother squirrel will tear your house down. He goes, you do not know what home damage is until you see a mother squirrel try to get in after her babies. You, you do not want to block that mama squirrel out. You want to let those babies get older and then leave the house and then block them out. Now, I know it's a very weird metaphor to describe God as a mama squirrel. But I've thought about that. How God's love, if there was anything between you and the love of God, God would tear everything down to get back to you. And in fact, we believe he did. The question is, do we believe this? Do we believe it? We read the parable of the, of the prodigal son, which is really a story about the father, isn't it? So just let me ask for those of you today who feel like the love of God is changeable and unpredictable, Point to me in the story where the prodigal, the father, point to me at the time of the story where the father's feelings changed toward the son. At what point in the story did, did the father be, you know, go from angry to appeased? At what point in the story was the relationship between the son and the father fragile or walking on eggshells. At what point in the emotional life of that father did anything other than a consistent, durable, unconditional love, the father's emotions never change. It's not just that the love of God is the fiercest love that we can imagine. It is also the most consistent and unconditional. I like the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, described this. The German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this. 
kind of comparing the vagarities, unpredictabilities of human love with the love of God. He says, God is not ashamed of human lowliness, but he goes right into the middle of it. God draws near to the lowly, loving the lost and the unnoticed, the unremarkable and the excluded, the powerless and the broken. For what people say is lost, God says is found. And what people say is condemned, God says is saved. And where people say no, God says yes. And where people turn their eyes away in indifference or arrogance, God gazes there with a love that grows warmer there than anywhere else. When people say something is despicable, God calls it blessed. So I'm a prison chaplain, uh, and I spend Monday nights out at a maximum security unit my hometown. And I remember one evening, um, I was preaching a kind of a message like this, God's unconditional, fierce, ferocious love. It's a message that falls like rain in a desert out of prison. Because that is the predicament of their faith journey. Can God really love me? And I remember that one evening um, when I was sharing that message, Steve raised his hand in the front row. And Steve, he goes, he, he said, how can I believe what you're saying? Because I've never heard anybody in my entire life say that they loved me. I never heard my dad say he loved me. I never heard my mother say she loved me. I heard a romantic boyfriend or girlfriend say they love me. Like, could you imagine going through life if you've never heard the words, I love you? And he says, so how can I believe in this better love if I've never had anybody who actually really loved me? There's no way to get his imagination around it. And Steve's lament that evening reminds me of this prayer in Ephesians. In Ephesians 3, Paul prays this prayer, and he says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend, let me underline that word, may be able to understand, may be able to wrap your head around, may be able to comprehend what? Comprehend what? The length, and the width, the height, and the depth of God's love. The heaviest rock you'll have to lift in your life is to believe how vast God's love is. That is so difficult for anxious living. Pray that you have the power to lift that belief. And that's what Steve lacked. He did not have the power to believe it. And so what I do every time I see Steve 
is I stand in front of him and I say what? I, Steve, I love you. And every time I look at Steve and I say, I love you, what, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to make the love of God believable for him. I'm trying to do what I can through my love for him, a dim and broken mirror that I am, but trying to make the love of God believable, credible, that he might even dare hope that the love of God is better. And so, brothers and sisters, that is what I hope you do. We have, every church has a choice in how your life together and your witness to the community, every church has a choice. You're either going to make the love of God more or less believable. You're going to make the love of God more or less believable. And some churches out there have, are building hell houses in their basement right now. And some of us are walking on eggshells. And every time we do that, we, we make people worry about if he really does love us. Or you can stand before each other your children, your spouses, your co-workers, this community, and brothers and sisters in this room. And you can stand there as a witness of the love of God and give each other the power to comprehend how high and deep and wide is the love of Christ Jesus. Think of the fiercest love we humans can feel. Maybe it's a mom like Paula Beck for me. Maybe it's the love of a friend. Maybe it's the love of a parent or a spouse. Think of the fiercest love you can love. God's love is better. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our prayer today is simplicity itself. Help us stop walking on eggshells and convince us once again how great is your love for us. Christ, we pray. Amen.